0: The universe as we know it today is full of stars, galaxies, and other points of light. That's how we see and detect what's out there in the universe. But the universe wasn't always this way. We can go back early in time to before stars ever formed. And what we can do as we come forward in time is witness that as the universe unfolds, matter gravitationally clumps together in a runaway sort of interaction that winds up forming stars in enormous bursts. Over the first few billions of years of the universe, the number of stars grew and grew at an ever-increasing rate. But for the last 11 billion years or so, that star formation rate has been falling as the universe has expanded and aged. What can we learn about the universe's newborn stars and how they affect the rest of the cosmos around it? Come find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. When we're asking questions about the universe's newborn stars, these are not just theoretical calculations or hypothetical questions that we're asking. These are questions that we can answer by going out and observing the universe itself and confronting our theories and our expectations with astronomical data from all across the universe. And to help us untangle exactly how we do this and what this means, I'm so pleased to to welcome Indiana University astrophysicist and scientist Jennifer Sieben. Jennifer, it's wonderful to have you here and welcome to the show.
1: Hey Ethan, thanks for having me
0: on. Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure. You know, when we talk about stars in the universe, we we typically think of them as, uh, here are these bright balls of plasma burning, fusing nuclear fusion in their core, and they will do this for millions or billions or even trillions of years, depending on the type of star there are. But to an astronomer, particularly like an astronomer like you who specializes in this, there's perhaps no moment more exciting than that transition from being just a cloud of gas, pre-stellar gas before it forms stars, to one that's actively forming stars and fusing nuclear fuel in its core. What is it to you that makes that transition so interesting?
1: I think it's really cool because you have, like you said, a big cloud of kind of everything, all your raw materials, and I bake a lot, so I know my kitchen is a whole bunch of raw materials, but if I put that all together, eventually I can create a fantastic cake, and galaxies do something similar. They, you know, condense these clouds, and eventually you have these gorgeous stars. Maybe it's a little bit more like cookies because you've got some big O stars and your little or M stars and all kinds of stars and all kinds of cookies and all together they form some fantastic desserts.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a great analogy too, because just like the the ratios of ingredients sort of determines what you get out in a cake, right? You you add too much butter or too little sugar or you you cook things at a different temperature and you're gonna wind up with a vastly different outcome than if things were just a certain particular way. And we see this with stars, too. The stars we form, they appear to come in different ratios, different sets of varieties, different mass distributions, depending on the stuff that that original cloud of gas was made out of.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's definitely interesting and, of course, not something we 100% understand.
0: No, and none of this is, right? If this were stuff we understand, I could have you on my podcast once. You would tell all of us how star formation works throughout its history and how the universe forms newborn stars. And then we'd never have to talk again and you'd be out of I'd a job.
1: I'd have to pick something new to study.
0: <laughs> you would. You would. But that's not how this works at all, right? If we... Let me ask you this, if we were to talk to you, and you were a graduate student 10 years ago, so not today, but if you, if you were to go back in time by about a decade, um, what were the pressing problems in star formation, in the universe's newborn stars? What were the big questions and mysteries and puzzles that we were asking back then?
1: I think at that time we were still trying to figure out uh, like, the rate at which stars were being formed over the course of history in our universe. So we know now that star formation peaked at a redshift of you know, somewhere between 1.5 and 2. But Ten years ago, I don't know if we knew that for sure. Maybe there was a little bit of hint, but maybe star formation was still accelerating, or maybe it had peaked. Way early on and had been falling off for a long time. So I think ten years ago, we are still kind of trying to nail that down.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because when we talk about how the universe forms stars, right? We we look at like regions in the Milky Way. You can even see some of them in the night sky, like the uh, the Orion Nebula. Um, If you look at the belt of Orion and then you go a little bit closer towards the horizon, at least for those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, you'll see what we call the Sword of Orion, which is like a few stars and some cloudy nebulous stuff. Uh, But what that actually is, is that is a hotbed of star formation. That is a large clump of gas that forms stars. And you might look at that and say like, oh, the Milky Way is actively forming stars. And the answer is, well, yeah, but kind of, right? The Milky Way (laughs) is forming stars, but on average, we form less than one solar masses worth of new stars every year. But when we look... Out in the universe, we can find galaxies where basically the entire galaxy is a star-forming region. And its star-forming rates are significantly higher than anything that we've identified in our own Milky Way. So I think that's sort of a remarkable thing, that there are these galaxies out there, these, these starburst galaxies, where these enormous bursts of activity are occurring. And 10 years ago, we didn't know when they were occurring, when it peaked, whether it peaked or not. And today, we look at this and we say, wow, star formation actually reached this peak, you know, roughly when the universe was about 3 billion years after the Big Bang. Like you said, that corresponds to a redshift of right around 2. And what this means is that right around the first time that we were forming what we now recognize today as mature galaxy clusters—the About the same time that you started to get collections of hundreds or even a thousand galaxies all together in one place, that's right when star formation peaked. And today, when we look at how much are we forming new stars, what's the rate of star formation in the universe, it's tiny compared to that value. I think it's only about three to five percent of what we were once forming at our peak is what we're forming on average today.
1: Yeah, it's definitely dropped off quite a bit.
0: Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that I don't think was is immediately clear to most people is why. Why does that happen? Is it just the expansion of the universe? Is it the fact that when you form large numbers of stars, you you can expel gas out of the galaxy and so you don't have that material? Or is it really that, you know, the thing that drives This star formation is the major mergers of galaxies, and we just have fewer major mergers now that the universe is older and more diffuse.
1: Definitely all good questions. As far as I know, we're still working on figuring that out.
0: No, and that's fantastic, because what you're telling me is we have basically, like, just with this, we've come up to the frontiers of modern astronomy on this front. Like, we know how you form stars, roughly, what conditions they form under, but we don't really know everything about them. We don't really know everything about the environments in which they form, about the types of stars that form, or the different circumstances that lead to different rates of star formations and different types of stars that you get out. Would you think that's that's a fair thing to say?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I know there's other people in my department that are studying different aspects of that. And that's something that's really cool when we get together for research meetings is seeing kind of different puzzle pieces that we all bring to the table as we're trying to work on figuring out this big picture of what our universe is doing.
0: Yeah, because if you if you go way back to the early stages, it's always it's always been a fascinating piece of uh Piece of knowledge to me to realize that the ingredients that we think of ourselves as being made out of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, calcium, iron, all of these things that we need for ourselves, even just the silicon and oxygen that, you know, Earth's crust is made out of um, none of these elements existed early on in the universe. None of these elements existed shortly after the Big Bang. They were only created because we had previous generations of stars that lived and died, that created these heavy elements that future generations of stars could form with rocky planets, organic molecules, and the ingredients for life like you and me.
1: Absolutely. You need those multiple generations of stars in order to get people that study stars.
0: Right, and that's that's kind of fascinating. It means like we are, we are the result of this cosmic evolution, and now we can go back with our telescopes because the farther away we look, the farther back in time we're also looking because the speed of light is only a finite speed. So you look, you know, millions or billions of light years away, and you're looking millions or billions of years back in time as well. This means that, you know, we are basically able to look far enough away at the very processes that made our existence possible.
1: Which is absolutely mind-blowing.
0: I know. Like, this is something that if if I came to you a century ago and I started telling you this, you would be like, well, you don't know that. And <laughs> today we do. Yeah, it it's wild. So the way we've learned this is not just by, you know, it's easy to sort of gloss over it and be like, oh, yeah, we go out and we observe the universe and it tells us this. Uh, but it's not really that straightforward. You know, it, I, I'm sort of giving you this picture that makes it sound like, like you or anyone else can just go and take a telescope and go observe, like, one or two things, and then you'll know the answer to these questions. Uh, and I hear you giggling over there because... Clearly, that's not the case. That's that's not an accurate representation of what happens, is it? Is it?
1: No, I definitely wish it was sometimes, but instead we take uh, multiple years worth of data using multiple different methods in order to try to get all the little puzzle pieces in order to figure this out.
0: Right. So so one of the one of the first techniques that you learn as an observational astronomer is uh is just called photometry or photometric astronomy. And this is basically where you take like, okay, I'm gonna take my telescope and instead of just like blindingly opening it with no filter at what's out there and just getting a deluge of all the different wavelengths of light, what you do instead is you put a filter over your telescope that's only sensitive to certain wavelengths of light. So you'll get like a filter you can put on your telescope that'll allow you to see the near ultraviolet light, or blue light, or green and yellow light, or red light, or infrared light, and you have all these different photometric bands. And depending on the ratios of the different types of light to one another, you can start to pull out some really interesting information about that, such as what do we estimate the redshift of this object we're looking at is? What do we estimate the temperature of the stars, or the distribution of stars? That are driving this inside. And that's and that's just because these different wavelengths of light correspond to different temperatures of gas, right? You heat something up and it'll radiate at a specific temperature. Uh, if you're a baker, you know, you put your cast iron thing in the oven, you take it out. And it looks just like your cold cast iron, but you go to touch it and you learn that horrifying lesson that every child learns. It's not. Which Yes, hot things don't look hot unless you had infrared eyes, in which case they would or in which unless you had it heated up to a high enough temperature something like you know around 800 kelvin or higher where it will actually start to radiate visible light which is how you know that lava is hot because lava will actually glow red i mean if if the liquid rock wasn't enough of a clue the the lava is actually glowing red it's that hot and as you turn up the temperature, it will start to glow—not just red, but orange, yellow, white, and even a whitish blue as you go to higher and higher temperatures. So that's that's sort of like that basic photometry technique. Um, and and I'm curious for you, like, just with that technique, um, we can reveal an awful lot about the stars that form in the universe, can't we?
1: Yeah, even just looking at that, you can kind of get an idea of, oh, hey, this galaxy over here has a lot more of these newer stars. They have burned really hot and they're not going to last long because they're burning so hot and burning through all their fuel really quickly. So you might know, hey, these are newer stars they formed recently versus you might look at some other galaxies. Maybe they look a little bit cooler, they're glowing a bit, you know, with a cooler temperature. And these are the stars that have lasted longer. And you get an idea, hey, well, this galaxy formed stars longer ago because I don't see any of those short-lived, big, hot ones. So even with just some basic color, you can kind of get a little bit of a history of when these galaxies formed stars.
0: And that's and that's a really fascinating thing to me because what you're what you're also saying is hey if we think we know how stars form right we have we have these models called initial mass functions where you basically say okay I'm going to take a cloud of gas and I'm going to let it form stars and these are the types of stars I'll get out you mentioned O stars which are the hottest brightest bluest and also the shortest lived stars uh And those are they have their own signature only about, you know, I think about 0.1% of all the stars that we ever form in the universe will be either O stars or bright enough B stars, the second brightest class of star, uh, to go supernova. And yet when we look at these young star-forming regions, these regions that are full of O and B stars, these are the stars that actually dominate the light and the temperature that we see from this. You can see this close by in the Tarantula Nebula in the Large Magellanic Cloud, where you have individual stars that are hundreds of times the mass of the sun and each one of those stars can glow with close to 10 million times the luminosity of our sun. That's one star glowing as bright as about 10 million suns. So even though they're few in number in terms of brightness, temperature, color, and overall luminosity, these rare objects can actually dominate the stars we see when they're there.
1: Absolutely, and that's definitely, you see those in the starburst galaxies too, usually named because a whole lot of stars formed at once, and so you do get a whole bunch of these O and B stars that glow incredibly brightly.
0: But the other side of that coin should also be true, right? If you went the, in the other direction and you found a galaxy that not only isn't actively forming stars right now, but maybe hasn't formed stars for many billions of years, well not only wouldn't there be any O or B stars, but you can start going down the you know stellar classification alphabet and maybe you'll lose... The O stars, the B stars, the A stars, maybe even you'll start to lose the F stars until all that's left are the G, K, and M stars that live longer than the present age of the universe.
1: Right, and they're a lot fainter too and harder to find.
0: Yeah, and so this is this is where things get really interesting, I think, to an observer. And this is where, as a as a theorist, I'm like, okay, like, well, we have we have our baton of the things we understand and we've observed well enough to cons- to you know to model and and think we've got it. And then and then we've just got to hand this off, right? We've just got to hand this off and say, well, now we need more data. We want to know what's coming. We need more data and regular old photometry is pretty limited with how much more information it could give us based on this can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah so regular photometry you are kind of collecting a whole bunch of light at once and as part of that you're spreading out what light you can see so even if there's maybe some little bit of light in a very specific wavelength if you're collecting light over a bigger filter like all of the blue filter, you might miss some of that little light. It'll kind of get spread out over your image, and it makes it harder to maybe detect some of these really low luminosity galaxies, which is why my project currently, we're actually turning to narrowband filters. So we're limiting our big filter to specifically a emission line. Um, We're looking at that specific wavelength of light that might indicate a specific set of stars.
0: And this is this is kind of an interesting thing because I didn't I didn't learn about narrow band surveys as a technique until uh, I'll just say embarrassingly late in my astronomy career because I thought it was either all photometry or all spectroscopy and that's it like either you can take the light you get and you can just sort of like apply this filter and get this broad sort of like okay we see light in this range or you could do spectroscopy and say I'm going to take this light and I'm going to break it up into all the individual wavelengths and I'm going to look for, you know, my my calcium line, my oxygen line, my carbon line, my whatever, you know, emission lines you want to look for, little wavelength by little wavelength by little wavelength. But spectroscopy is astronomically expensive. It takes time. It takes equipment. It takes a lot of analysis. And it you can only observe a small set of wavelengths and a small set of objects at once in general. And photometry is sort of like casting like just a giant net out into the universe. You're going to get a lot of stuff But you're not gonna get like high resolution stuff. You're just gonna sort of uh, you're gonna gather what's out there, and you won't be able to tell what's what. Did I catch a tuna? Did I catch a dolphin? Did I catch like a pile of plastic? You, you're not really gonna be quite as sure. But when you talk about a narrow band survey, this this to me, I I've sort of learned to think of it as like a hybrid that keeps some of the advantages of spectroscopy and some of the advantages of photometry, and that enables you to do things that you can't do with either one on their own.
1: Absolutely, so my current project is the star formation across cosmic time project, and it utilizes both of these in what is sort of a hybrid method. So we do go out and we take just these big field images of the sky. We're not looking for any particular target We're just trying to look at a spot on the sky. And we take both narrowband and actually these broader continuum band images. And what we're able to do with that is we have these uh, filters and these images that come back with just the light from our narrowband. So this is what's telling us, hey, There's specifically maybe H-alpha or O3 emission that's really strong right here. And we use our broadbands to kind of compare and make sure that this is indeed the emission line, not just, oh, there happens to be a whole lot of blue coming from this spot on the sky. So we are checking to make sure it is indeed from an emission line. And this is sort of like our coarse spectroscopy.
0: I think that's I think that's really a fascinating technique. So so what we're saying for especially for those of you who don't maybe know off the top of your head what an H alpha line or an O3 emission line is, um, in general you've got atoms in the universe, they have electrons on them and they're happy to be neutral. But if you form stars, if you form these hot new stars, what they're going to do is they are going to ionize A lot of the atoms around you. They're going to start kicking electrons off of them. Hydrogen ionizes at a pretty low temperature. So when you kick those electrons off of hydrogen atoms, now you've got electrons and free hydrogen nuclei floating around, and those electrons are going to recombine with the hydrogen, and when they do they cascade down in energy levels and they emit light at those frequencies. H-alpha represents that 3 to 2, if you were to count the hydrogen energy levels, that transitions from a third, the third lowest state to the second lowest state, and that actually is a bright visible red line at about 656 nanometers. So that's what we say when we say H alpha, that's that transition we're talking about. The O3 line, that's from doubly ionized oxygen that has electrons falling back onto them and cascading down in energy levels. And that's a transition that only occurs when things are, I think, above about 50,000 Kelvin in temperature. So you need a very, very hot environment. We have lots of environments that we find that have h alpha that don't have o3 but then we find lots of environments that have o3 and they pretty much all also have h alpha so it sounds like what you're doing is the photometry is sort of like this uh this broad like okay we're going to we're going to look at this region of sky and we're going to find stuff that like okay there's a galaxy there there's a star something here. And then what you do is you take on top of that, you say, okay, we know what the red shift of this object is, that's something we can measure or estimate, so that means we know roughly where we expect this H-alpha line, this O3 line to be located. And then, now we're going to go to narrow band. we're going to go to a narrow filter, where instead of looking at something that's, you know, maybe a few hundred nanometers wide in terms of of what wavelengths are we looking at, we're now looking at something that's maybe only a handful of nanometers wide. I think I think that's right, is that right?
1: It's close. We actually look at all of our photometry at once. So we actually take a difference image between the continuum and our narrowband images, and that's what helps us identify that this for sure is an emission line galaxy. So we're looking at that at once, and we don't immediately know Exactly what redshift it is, we have a couple different filters, and we can say, okay, well, this showed up in our filter that where we generally expect H alpha lines, but it's possible that we might get a random nitrogen line in there. And so then we actually go back with spectroscopy and we get these more specific, finer spectroscopy of, or spectra of each individual galaxy that we find and that's what confirms the redshift and confirms yes this is the emission line we saw that we expected or every once in a while oh hey that was a weird nitrogen line that snuck in there huh I guess that is at a slightly different redshift than we you know we're targeting
0: I I think that's an important thing that most people don't appreciate about observational astronomy is that uh, you get uh, I'll call them imposters. You get these imposters all the time. Uh, do Do you have nightmares about them?
1: Well, in this project, not particularly. We'll take any of them. As long as we know what it is, I am happy to take all the imposters that get in there. So, in this project, not necessarily.
0: Yeah, I remember talking with a Kepler, uh, a NASA Kepler scientist not too long ago, and I was like, you know, does it bother you that half of your exoplanet candidates just turned out to be like binary stars? And she said to me, like, well, no, because I was working on exoplanets before Kepler, where like 90% of our candidates turned out not to be planets. So, for Kepler to get down to 50% of them aren't planets, like, that's great. it, what Do you have any sort of uh, back-of-the-envelope or off-the-top-of-your-head ideas of how many of these galaxies that you look at turn out to actually be these star-forming galaxies that you're interested in versus how many of them are like, you know, just some weird line that is like, oh, no, that's not what I'm looking for?
1: Well, we are working on that part finishing up that part of it currently. but once we've narrowed it down to these are at least the emission line galaxies. I think the only ones that are kind of the interlopers that we didn't expect to see, I think is on the order of like ten percent, maybe less.
0: okay. well, that's that seems uh, that seems pretty solid to me. Yeah. that seems like hey, we know what we're doing and we we actually have set up a pretty good filter for this.
1: We think we have.
0: but you always worry about that don't you you always worry about like oh am i fooling myself and am i missing something and i'm sure you have plenty of people in your field and in tangential fields who are happy to tell you uh that yeah you might have
1: absolutely and this is why we're setting up tons of tests and i can give that back of the envelope thing but i know that there's still some further tests that we have yet to do before we collect this into a paper and go out and tell the rest of the astronomers, we think we have some good data. We want to be extra sure first.
0: So one of the things I'm a little curious about is how far out into the universe you can go with this technique, right? When you're when you're talking about doing these large narrow band surveys, I start to wonder, I start to wonder, you know, well, you want to go further back into the universe's history and these emission line signatures that you're talking about, H-alpha, O3, etc. I I know these lines as like, oh, These are visible lines. That hydrogen line you're talking about, that's a red line. That oxygen line you're talking about, that's a green line. When you start saying, oh, I'm going to go to higher redshifts, to greater distances, to looking at earlier times in the universe, I know that we're talking about looking at longer wavelengths, that these wavelengths of light are getting stretched by the expansion of the universe. And at some point... Uh, you're not going to be able to study these galaxies from the ground anymore because they are redshifted into a part of the infrared where the atmosphere won't let that light through. And at some point, you're going to have to go to space to do that. And even at that, at some point, you're going to run into the limits of, say, what even the Hubble Space Telescope could image. So when you're talking about, I want to use large narrowband surveys to probe the star formation history of the universe and, and what did you say your program was called? S Fact, the star formation across cosmic time.
1: Yep, it's an absolutely catchy title. I love it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a supersymmetric fact. You mm-hmm. know, just put an S before it. fact <laughs> But what is what are sort of the the limitations of this large narrowband survey technique? at some point, at some point you're gonna say like well, that's that's as far as we can go." And of course you you should go until you reach that. but but what are sort of those fundamental limits?
1: Right. So a lot of it has to do directly with the filter choices that we make. So right now, um, our highest redshift filter is getting us up to with our O2 detections, about a redshift of 1. So already pretty decent spread. We're going from like a redshift of basically 0 up to 1 with over three filters. And we're seeing at the lower redshifts, we can detect H-alpha detections. In the middle, we've got our O3. And then at the higher ones, we've got O2. But we do have to keep looking at these different wavelengths in order to get these higher redshifts. just can't get the H-alpha detections at the redshift of one because eventually, it like you said, wavelength-wise it gets too redshifted. Suddenly we're not in the optical range anymore and at least with our telescope we also have to have considerations for what the broadband filters are. Since we're doing this subtraction we need to be considerate of do we have something to subtract against. Now, the fun thing is I have another project where I'm looking at comparing between these different filters. So, like you mentioned earlier, sometimes you get the H alpha and the O3 detections, and you might be able to see maybe the same galaxy, but you get the emission lines from both. And we can then compare kind of what the end result is from both of these. So I can say, hey, if I just look at the H-alpha, it looks like the star formation rate is x. If I just look at all the O3, it looks like the star formation is y. And we can kind of scale between them so that then when we go to the higher redshifts and we can't observe with the H-alpha, but we can observe with the O3, we'll still be fine. And the goal of kind of a multiple astronomy projects is to kind of continue bootstrapping and cosmic laddering our way out. So that we can keep reaching these higher and higher redshifts with robust good techniques that we really understand.
0: Yeah, and if I remember right, a lot of the the very high redshifts, the one that's the ones that tend to go far beyond what you're what you're looking at if you're going out to redshift of one, is we look at what are called Lyman Break galaxies, which is mm-hmm. where you're you're not looking at those optical hydrogen transitions anymore, but rather the ultraviolet ones. You're looking at at those ultraviolet lines where an electron is dropping all the way down to the lowest energy state, the ground state of hydrogen. And that, I think, is good at about a redshift of three or so. So it sounds like that there are many different techniques that you can use, and that each technique is good at covering a certain temperature range, a certain star formation rate, a certain uh, distance away from us in the universe or redshift, and when you sum them all together, when you sort of make this like patchwork quilt of what's happening at different redshifts out there in the universe, you're going to wind up with this fuller picture of how do stars form over the history of the universe.
1: Absolutely. There's a really good plot in uh, van Sistine 2016 that has exactly this. It's a chart of star formation history, and each of the plots are color-coded with what the method they used to observe them was. And you can see at the early or at the in the local universe, we can use a lot of these different methods. But as you go out to the higher and higher redshifts, suddenly you're pretty much just left with UV. That's the only thing that can reach those redshifts of like six or seven.
0: Yeah, until, by the way, until we get the James Webb Space Telescope.
1: Yes, that would be nice. I would like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think as a as someone who's a graduate student, right as James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled for launch next year, uh, this has to be a particular observatory of interest for you because of the wavelength range it will cover and the fact that we will be able to probe star formation out beyond the limits of where we've ever been able to see it up until the present day.
1: Definitely, I have definitely looked at kind of what some of the limitations of James Webb are and kind of in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of project proposals that I will possibly be proposing in a year or two.
0: I I think I think that's going to be very exciting for not only you but for many many astronomers worldwide who study the star formation history of the universe.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, if I were to ask you as a as a curious non-expert, like I'm the curious non-expert, um, so the way the way I like to think of this is is I want you to treat me like I'm a Martian that I'm someone who has intelligence but no experience um, how would you tell me the star formation history of the universe? If I didn't know how the universe formed stars, when it forms stars, what it formed, if you were to sort of tell me, you know the, the five five to ten minute version history of star formation in the universe what would it sound like?
1: I guess I would start by saying at the very beginning there was a couple st- stars they kind of formed and eventually we started a runaway train process. Stars became more galaxies and those galaxies formed more stars and those stars you know either star bursted or remained you know keep going being stars and we have basically a runaway train effect of more stars being created. But eventually, we get to kind of more recent times, and these galaxies have drifted apart, there's some quenching that happened, and we don't really understand all of it, but the galaxies slowed down this runaway train, and they aren't forming stars as quickly anymore. In fact, it's almost a little bit sluggish, and we're nearly back to the rate at which we formed stars way at the beginning. But we still have all of these really long-lived stars that are hanging on.
0: Well, and that, that I think, is, is a really nice overall picture, right? What you're saying is we, we form stars and the star formation rate rose and rose and rose right we had we had gas in it seemed like unlimited supply for a while that you know you bring you bring mass together it starts to gravitate it clumps together you get this runaway effect you form stars and then the stars phew, they sort of push back you talked about quenching that's the stars sort of like okay I'm hot I'm radiating I'm producing winds And I'm blowing the gas away that makes new stars. But there's no worry for a while because that gas that I blow away, it's going to run into other gas. It's going to create instabilities and you're going to form stars there. And this continues up to a point. And then if you get a large enough star formation event or you form enough stars that you can blow this gas away, right? These galaxies eventually run out of or start to lose all of this free gas. And in addition, the universe is larger. It's expanded. There are fewer galaxies in close proximity together. So you get these clusters and groups of galaxies that can merge together. In fact, I would expect that we're going to have a big, big burst of star formation in the local group about four to seven billion years in the future yeah. when the two largest galaxies merge together.
1: Yeah, Milky Way and Andromeda eventually are going to collide, and that's definitely something we see a lot. If there's a big burst of recent star formation, it's quite likely that it's because two galaxies collided together.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, you know that's sort of a great way that we I guess that we're keeping that three to five percent of our peak uh, still going. That we're like okay, like that's where we're getting maybe even the majority of new stars today from.
1: Yeah, it's
0: very likely. Yeah, and again, like I, I say this and I realize like, well, you, you're doing the right thing. You're hedging. You're saying it's it's very likely because it hasn't been established because there is this sort of ongoing quiescent star formation that just like, okay, you have like a Milky Way galaxy and it's just chugging along, forming stars at about one solar mass per year. I think it's maybe like point maybe two thirds of a solar mass per year.
1: I usually round to one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, But you have, you know, a couple of trillion galaxies throughout the universe. It's possible that this quiet star formation, this low level of star formation over so many galaxies actually adds up to something that's meaningful or possibly even dominant. So one of the things that I know you've expressed to me that you're passionate about is not just this, uh, this cosmic story of the universe of how do you form stars, how did they grow up, how do you produce newborn stars, how do you find these narrowband surveys, uh, but you're also incredibly interested in astronomy outreach. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about why you feel it's so important and how you enjoy doing outreach?
1: Yeah, so I guess I sort of got my start uh, being an intern at Adler Planetarium in Chicago, which is a great place to start astronomy outreach, if you are interested in that. I grew up going to Adler when I was a kid, and I mean, I think I've pretty much always been interested in astronomy, and Adler especially is great at fostering this. They have tons of exhibits, and my favorite was always the Space Visualization Lab which is exactly what it sounds. They take lots of recent astronomy research and they find a way to visually show you that. And one of the things that they have in there that was always very cool to see is they have a visualization of the Milky Way and Andromeda colliding together. And I'm sure many people have seen it, but it's especially cool when you see it in 3D with those 3D glasses and things like that that are the visual representations of sometimes hard to imagine concepts which there are a lot of in astronomy it's very good at getting you interested and the astronomers were great there, I could ask them questions and they never talked down to me like I was a kid so naturally I wanted to do the same I wanted to give other people the same excitement I felt when I was sitting there with those big 3D glasses on watching galaxies collide
0: that's that's got to be incredible can i ask you like how how old you were when you had those experiences
1: um i can probably actually find out but i want to say like five ish oh wow maybe
0: oh wow so Um, you were like just a starry-eyed kindergartner like experiencing this and like just having the wow factor
1: yeah i mean like i said i've been going there my whole life. My grandparents would take me and then my parents would take me and then I became an intern there in high school and I was like, alright, my turn, um, which was really fun. <laughs> um, interning at Adler was great because I got to work with the astronomers there that gave me a little bit of like basic astronomy research knowledge, but they're also good at pushing me to do what I didn't think I was ready for yet. So I would come to the Space Visualization Lab, help out, answer some of the, you know, maybe the easier questions, just explain, yes, this is Mars. This is the Mars rover. It's on Mars now. And then a couple weeks later, they'd be like, all right, you've listened to us give the presentation enough times. It's your turn.
0: Wow. That's That's got to be like a a moment where you feel like, you know, okay, like I'm up in the airplane and I'm watching things go. And what do you mean you're going to push me out? What do you mean? Like, here's a parachute. Go. It's your turn.
1: Absolutely. It definitely felt like that. But I did it a couple times. I answered their questions and eventually I got better at it. And one of the other things I really enjoyed doing at Adler was they have their dome Observatory there that has a telescope and specifically they have two solar telescopes on it so it could be open during the day and we can show people the sun. And that's always been my favorite part of outreach is showing people things through the telescope because the wonder on people's faces when they see the sun, the sunspots, the filaments, which are like jets of fire coming out of the sun, they always look so excited. Or especially at night when I get to show them Saturn or Jupiter and they're like, "That's that's really the planet? I'm like, yeah, yeah it is.
0: Yeah, a lot of people, I think, uh, e- even if they don't discover it until late in life, when they when they do look through a telescope for the first time and see something, like like Saturn, where you can see, like, the space between the planet Saturn and the rings, where you can see their separate things, and you can see that little pinprick of light that it's its giant moon Titan nearby, or you can see Jupiter and its moons and the bands on Jupiter, and you realize that this is what Galileo looked at, or you find Venus and you can see its phases... Um, That you could see like, oh, like here we are in, you know, late May as we record this podcast. And if I go and look at Venus in the post-sunset skies right now, uh, I can see that it's an extremely thin crescent that it's only about, you know, 7% illuminated right now. It's like a super thin crescent. But but without a telescope, it just looks like a bright point of light, just like all the other planets do.
1: Absolutely. And, yeah, seeing people... See that is just super thrilling and I definitely I enjoy sharing that wonder and that excitement pretty much in any way that I can
0: So do you think about ways that you could? Bring that same sort of wonder and excitement that you felt Do you think about ways that you can do that to people with your own research on the star formation history of the universe on narrowband surveys? because um, I know Like, I've talked to you enough that I know you feel that same excitement you felt, you know, showing people sunspots, showing people prominences and features on the sun, showing them, uh, you know, visualizations of the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy colliding. You feel that same excitement when it comes to looking for these emission lines in distant galaxies. Um, how, How do you... Translate your excitement for something that is less uh, relatable to most people into something that they can appreciate?
1: Analogies are your best friend for that. I mean, I started off by comparing star formation to baking cookies. People understand cookies, um, and you know, if you give them something that they understand. And then give them connections to at least the broader picture of what you're doing, then they can translate that excitement about cookies to excitement about different galaxies.
0: That sounds like uh, it sounds a lot like the way I, I like to think about outreach as well, where it's uh, the the first step is not like most people are like how do I how do I start like where do I start and. And my answer is always, I want you to start with your own mindset of what you were like intellectually and what you were thinking about before you ever heard of this thing. Like what, what preconceptions did you have? How did you make sense of things? And use that as the starting point, because what you want to do is you want to start talking to people at a level where you're confident they already have sure-footing, where they have sure-footed understanding of something. Um, So talk to them about cookies, talk to them about a ball of dough, talk to them about something they've seen and experienced and are familiar with, and then you can start taking small steps that slowly lead them into the unfamiliar, where each step isn't so big, each step isn't so hard, But if you can start at a place where everyone's with you and then take small steps where everyone remains with you, by the time you get to the end, people are like, oh, how did I wind up here? This is amazing. uh, You won't have lost them.
1: Absolutely. You definitely have to start where your audience is at. And that's a lot easier in person when you can see in their face, oh, hang on, they didn't quite understand that. I'll step that back a little bit. But if you're doing it through videos or through writing or even through a podcast, you have to kind of trust some instinct of guessing where your audience is at. And that's where the bigger generalizations are really good. But when I talk at conferences, I'll usually, even within astronomy, astronomers study a wide variety of things and you specialize quickly. So I'll often ask, you know, hey, what caught your eye on my poster so I can understand? What's the connection bit between your work and my work?
0: Yeah, because there are there are a lot of astronomers, and this is true of all people in all fields, there are a lot of astronomers who know an awful lot about one particular thing, but who don't necessarily know all that much about related fields or tangential fields that are more outside their areas of expertise, even though... We you know we we've got this saying in astronomy that I find is only more and more true as time goes on that one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's data
1: definitely
0: you've you've heard this before
1: <laughs> Yeah, definitely heard it before We tease each other in our department definitely some about this too when. Uh, I for my project need the really dark nights because any little bit of the moonlight and suddenly I can't see half of the galaxies I'm trying to see. But my friend who studies stars, he's like, great. I don't care if the full moon is up. Give me that. I can still use it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because what what you're always interested in is you're interested in your signal to noise ratio. Whatever you're trying to do, you want high signal compared to the noise. When you're studying stars, because they are such good point sources, um, all that really matters is what's happening in the atmosphere and elsewhere along your line of sight to that star. The fact that you have diffuse moonlight isn't gonna pollute you. But when you're looking at an extended object, like a galaxy, Um, you're not just looking at one narrow thing of sky, you're looking at an extended region. So when you look at that extended region of sky, and you've got all this diffuse light spread out over it, it's sort of like, you know, okay, the moonlight didn't bother me when it was only intersecting, you know, a hundredth of an arc second on the sky because my, my object that I was looking at only takes up a hundredth of an arc second on the sky. But when you look at something that takes up, I don't know, 10 arc seconds on the sky, all of a sudden, that's a million times the area that's a million times the surface area compared to something that's a hundredth of an arc second. So when you're like, oh, I've got moonlight in the way, that's a million times the amount of moonlight interfering with your object as compared to your friend's object.
1: Yep, never said what I studied was easy.
0: (laughs) Well, it could be if we just had all your telescopes in space, right?
1: ooh, yeah, that'd be nice. I mean, they are still like, ooh, all of four pixels sometimes. (laughs) And even just the read noise of the CCD can sometimes dominate. But yeah, it'd (laughs) definitely be easier in space.
0: You know, I, I don't have a good analogy for that. When I when I was uh, when I was doing my PhD I did it in physics and we joked that theorists spend all their time looking for factors of two and experimentalists spend all their time looking for leaks. Is there an analogy for observational astronomers?
1: I don't have a good one off the top of my head. I'll have to think on that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I because the the problems that observational astronomers often have is they're 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 noise related problems. But I think the different sources of noise are not as easily generalizable as multiplicative factors or leaks. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the joke is if it's, if it's not something with your instrument in astronomy, you can blame it on dust or you can blame it on evolution. And those are always the things you can always blame it on. If you go to any talk and you raise your hand at the end and you ask, what are the effects of dust or what about the effects of evolution, the speaker will always tell you that is a good question.
1: Yeah. Throwing that or magnetic fields.
0: Oh, yeah. That's right. Plenty of things have magnetic fields as an issue that's true that's true so we're getting close to the end of time but i wanted to ask um i wanted to ask about the future of both of these right now we've been able to trace out to a a pretty good accuracy of when in cosmic time when we formed stars at what rate that's a question we're getting pretty good at answering um But at the same time, it's always the case in science where when you answer a question and you discover what the answer to that question is, it raises new questions. So at the beginning of this, I asked you about what were we asking about astronomy, about star formation history, about the universe's newborn stars 10 years ago. What are we asking today that's different from what we were asking 10 years ago?
1: Maybe it's personal bias, but I think we're going to be asking, what does it look like in a narrowband universe? So we have all of these data points that look at the broadband universe, what we can tell from our broadband photometry. But I think with narrowbands, it might illuminate a few things that we hadn't quite considered before. Already we know that O3 makes things a little bit weird, and I won't bother going into that because it's still very complicated, and I'm working on understanding that. But if three already which is fairly well understood in the local universe if that's already proving to be a little bit weird and throwing some maybe some bumps in our current understanding well what happens when we do go into other less common narrowband emission lines if we are looking at nitrogen lines um, so I think as we move our way out in the universe looking at these different narrowband emissions I think possibly we'll see maybe a few shifts in our understanding of maybe, maybe it will be exactly where that peak was, or maybe it'll be understanding exactly what is quenching or encouraging star formation.
0: Yeah. And it's fascinating as you say this, I'm thinking like, wow, like these are things that I've heard other astronomers discuss as like possible systematic errors and for you to talk about them, you're actually talking about like, no, these might not be systematic errors like forever or in every instance. These can also be probes of the underlying physics and physical processes that, that sort of inform us about how stars form throughout cosmic history in the universe. And that, that I suppose is what, uh, what S fact is probably what the science goals of it are.
1: Yep, definitely. As long, like you said, sometimes it's noise, but if we're focusing and trying to understand the noise, well, now that's a project.
0: Yeah, and uh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're gonna have no shortage of possible directions to go in as as this becomes as this becomes a more widespread and ubiquitous tool and technique. Um, is there anything? observationally that you're real excited to get your hands on as far as either data goes or a new instrument goes for for looking at the universe in these narrowband ways as we've never looked at it before?
1: Well, like you said, James Webb, when that launches, that's definitely going to push this redshift window that I'm working in a little bit further out and... My astronomical career so far has been just slowly inching closer and closer to the Big Bang. So I'm hoping that my next big project will be at a little bit higher redshift.
0: Yeah. And it's, look, if you're going from between redshift of zero and one to James Webb Space Telescope redshifts, like you're you're not going to be going from like one to two or one to three. You're really going to be jumping way, way out there, uh, possibly up to like, you know, the farthest redshifts we we pretty much know of today.
1: Definitely that part on the plot that only has a few data points so far. I'd like to stick my name to a couple new ones.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's, uh, that's really interesting. If I were to compare it with, uh, with another sort of monumental technique, right, We, we all know about type 1a supernovae. These are white dwarf stars that either merge with other white dwarf stars or accrue enough mass from an orbiting companion that they cross a threshold, they cross a specific mass threshold, they go boom in a special and very standard type of supernova explosion known as a Type 1A, Um, and these are the deepest standard candles in the universe. These are the things we understand. If you look at where did these supernovae come from— before the Hubble Space Telescope, right? And this is all throughout surveys of the 80s and 90s, we had discovered so many type 1A supernovae. The overwhelming majority of type 1A supernovae were discovered with ground-based telescopes, but almost all of those supernovae were between a redshift of zero and some number that's slightly less than one. I forget if it's exactly like 0.6 and 0.8. Yeah, we round. Yeah, and then, you know, yes, they had the announcement of the famous 1998 announcements of like, we think we've discovered that the universe is accelerating, that the expansion is accelerating, and that there must be some sort of new term in the universe which we now call dark energy driving it um but the the highest redshift ones the ones that are out at redshift of one and above those are almost all from the hubble space telescope and that's where we have the most compelling data about this so when you're talking about i'm gonna go to higher redshifts um i would encourage you even though i know you don't need the encouragement. Um, to look for surprises, because that is where, like when you push these cosmic frontiers, when you push to to greater redshifts, to, to new realms where you haven't looked for the same effect before, um, that's where the most interesting discoveries and potential surprises often lurk.
1: Absolutely. Universe always has uh, new things to throw at you.
0: Um, so one other thing I did want to ask is, um, you know, I know that you maintain an interest in outreach. I believe you might even be your uh, the Indiana the Indiana University Astronomy Department's. Uh, you might be the outreach chair if I read that right.
1: Yeah, currently the outreach coordinator. I do that, and that's a lot of. The bit that I like most, we have an observatory on campus, and every Wednesday night, as long as uh, it's clear, the weather's nice, and people are allowed to get together, uh, we show people the universe. And we sometimes have tours that come through lots of school groups, which is great. Um, I also, though, I am the co-editor at large of Indiana University's science blog, which is. Uh, conversations in science at Indiana University
0: and that and that's fantastic um you know I think there are lots of ways to communicate science to the general public and as long as you maintain your excitement and you try to motivate curiosity in others uh, and you're factually correct with what you're communicating I, I think you're doing a fantastic job and everything I've seen you know checks all three boxes Oh, thanks, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, uh, do you have any uh, do you have any idea of what the future holds for you in terms of outreach? If there's if there's anything you'd like to particularly do or accomplish looking ahead to the future?
1: Well, I do have a sort of idea where what I like right now about our science blog IU is that it's a bunch of graduate students from a whole bunch of different science fields that get together and we write our blogs and we peer edit each other's posts. But that is only the grad students at Indiana University. And I have an inkling of an idea that I would like to make a new version of that when I leave and connect with grad students. I don't know. Or not necessarily grad students probably more likely postdocs. Um, all over the world. So you do still get this uh, science of many different types and people of many different backgrounds all working together to communicate this science. And if I can't do that, I'm always here for videos. I've been making YouTube videos for a while and that's always really fun to do.
0: All right. Well, Well, Jennifer is going to send me those links and you will find those links to uh, her outreach endeavors in the uh, in the comments and descriptions on this video or on this podcast. And uh, I encourage you to check them out. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing some stories about the star formation history of the universe, about how specifically useful large narrowband surveys are for uncovering it. And for giving us a peek into not only the future of astronomy, but into the present and future of astronomy outreach and the importance of communicating what we know and what we've discovered to the general public at large. Uh, Before we close the show, can I ask you if you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners?
1: I think my main final thought is find something that excites you and learn more about it. There's whether it's in astronomy or anything else. I think that drive for curiosity and learning something new is really important.
0: Well, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that's uh, I think that's a wonderful sentiment. And thank you for sharing your time with us and your science stories with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. This is a blast.
0: It's been my pleasure. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible thanks to the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone who donates at the $5 a month level and above. So thanks go to... Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, Punitive Expedition, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maricini, Robert J. Hansen, Peter Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Grand, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Jerry Wilterding, Laird WH, Ahmed Lee Comsi, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose gomez Garcia, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcick, Danny, Mike, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Chuck Dannen, Vlad Peshovsky, Paul B. Lester, Alfredo Vivanco, Lalina Manenti, Gabriel Neder, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tomas Walgren, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Renicke, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Henakon, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slimak, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Kelly Kudrick, Dana Bridges, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Radek Nesbida, James. James Nance, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, Philip Radilevic. Thanks to all of you for supporting us, and thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to host the show, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.